Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 109, The Romantic Warriors. In this episode, we're going to look at the rise of English romance in the late 1200s. Over the prior century or so, medieval romances had become all the rage in the courts of Europe. That included stories about Charlemagne and the legends of King Arthur and his knights. Those stories mixed together themes of bravery and warfare with elements of chivalry, love, and romance. The stories were popular throughout Europe, including the English court, but they weren't composed in English. That finally started to change around the current point in our story in the late 1200s. For the first time, romantic literature started to be composed in English. And that also included songs with romantic themes. So this time, we'll explore the birth of English romance. And we'll also look at the early reign of Edward I, a king who was considered a brutal oppressor by some and a romantic warrior by others. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com slash historyofenglish. And as always, you can reach me by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. Now this time, let's return to our overall historical narrative and the end of the reign of Henry III. As we saw a couple of episodes back, Henry had to deal with a revolt by his barons late in his reign. He was forced to agree to the provisions of Oxford, and a letter confirming the new political arrangement was sent to the counties. That letter was one of the first government proclamations issued in English since the Norman Conquest. As we saw, the leader of the barons was Simon de Montfort and he was later killed in a battle when his forces met those led by Henry's son, Edward. Edward's victory essentially ended the rebellion. His father Henry resumed his authority as king, but Henry started to withdraw from political life, and that allowed Edward to fill the vacuum and emerge as the dominant figure in the English government. In the year 1270, Edward left England to head to the Holy Land on crusade and he was accompanied by his wife, who was also descended from crusaders. Edward's wife was Eleanor of Castile, so she was from Spain, and her father and great-grandfather had been crusaders, having fought to reclaim Spain from its Muslim rulers. The couple had been married sixteen years earlier. It was a political marriage, as was common at the time, but it was also somewhat unique in that it seems the couple were actually in love with each other. They were virtually inseparable, and Eleanor often accompanied Edward on his travels and his military excursions. So when Edward headed to the Near East, Eleanor traveled with him. The crusade itself never amounted to very much. Edward remained in the region for more than a year, and he organized raids into Muslim territories. But the crusade was not without drama. Edward was almost killed, but not in battle. It was an assassin that almost ended his life. One night, Edward lay in bed with Eleanor when a messenger arrived bearing gifts and claiming to have secret information. Edward's servants woke Edward and asked him to meet the visitor. Edward soon appeared in his nightclothes, but the visitor rushed at Edward with a dagger and stabbed him. 
Edward responded by punching the man in the head and knocking him to the ground. Edward then grabbed another dagger from a table and stabbed the attacker, killing him on the spot. Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. First, it illustrates Edward's reputation as a fierce warrior who killed would-be assassins with his own hands. The other reason I tell you this story is because, according to the account of a chronicler known as the Templar of Tyre, Eleanor rushed into action to save her husband's life. Apparently, it was feared that the dagger that struck Edward was poisoned, so Eleanor sucked the blood from the wound to remove any poison before it could take effect. Now, modern scholars are skeptical of this account and suspect that Eleanor didn't actually suck any poison from Edward's wound, but the story itself shows how close the couple were and how much affection they had for each other. A short time after the attack, the couple headed back to England, but they took their time along the way. While spending some time in Italy in November, Edward received news that his father had died in England. At that point, the couple knew that they would be crowned as the new king and queen as soon as they returned home. Now, you might think that they would have rushed to England to claim the throne, but that wasn't the case. They continued to take their time. In fact, it took nearly two years for Edward to make his way back to England. That was how stable the country was in his absence, and it was a sign of how much the nobles respected Edward. There was no concern about a new challenge from the barons while he was away. Edward eventually returned home and was officially crowned as king in August of 1274. He thereby became Edward I. And I should probably note the obvious, which is that he is known as Edward I, even though he was actually the third English king named Edward. You might remember that Alfred the Great's son was named Edward, and technically he was the first King Edward. And of course, there was Edward the Confessor. But the numbering of kings usually applies to those who reigned after the Norman Conquest. So even though he was the third Edward to rule England, he is known to history as Edward I. He was also the first Plantagenet king to have an English name. His predecessors included Williams and Henrys and Richards, all French names, but Edward had a native Anglo-Saxon name, and that was because his father Henry adored Edward the Confessor, and he named his son after the former Anglo-Saxon king. Edward was also known by the nickname Longshanks, which literally meant long legs or long-legged. I've noted before that the word leg is actually a Norse word. Before it was borrowed into English, the original Old English word for a leg was shanka, or as we know it today, shank. So the nickname Longshanks meant long legs, because Edward was very tall. His tomb was actually opened several centuries later in 1774, and when the tomb was opened, his bones indicated that he was about six feet two inches tall which meant that he was about six inches taller than the average man of his time. Now, admittedly, most of the kings and queens I've discussed in the podcast are obscure figures from medieval history. But there's a chance that you might actually know a little bit about Edward I, especially if you're a fan of movies set during this period. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, 
you might recall that Edward was the English king who was trying to conquer Scotland, and meeting fierce resistance from the Scots in the process. Well, even though the film takes a lot of liberties with the story, the movie is based on actual events. Most of those events took place later in Edward's reign, so we'll look at those developments in a future episode. But Edward's claims to all of Britain were on full display from the very beginning of his reign. Before Edward turned his attention north to Scotland, he first took aim at Wales in the west. Wales had always been a thorn in the side of English kings. From time to time, English kings claimed the right to rule Wales, and they demanded that the local rulers recognize the English king as their overlord. Sometimes the English kings invaded the region and forced the issue. But inevitably, the Welsh rulers would rise up and rebel, and reassert their independence. That's what happened when the barons rebelled against Edward's father, Henry, a few years before. The Welsh ruler, named Llewellyn, had formed an alliance with Simon de Montfort. So, when Edward came to power, he already bore a grudge against the Welsh prince. Llewellyn then refused to recognize Edward as his feudal lord. And Llewellyn also broke an earlier agreement to provide a tribute payment to the English crown. Very soon after becoming king, Edward invaded Wales with the intention of subduing the Welsh rebels. His Welsh campaigns began in 1277, and he ultimately forced Llewellyn to pay homage. A short time later, Llewellyn rose in rebellion again. This time, Edward intended to put an end to the rebellions once and for all. He no longer claimed to be some type of feudal lord over the region. He wanted to crush the rebels and completely conquer the region. He wanted to govern Wells directly and bring it under the authority of the English crown. He raised a large army and invaded for a second time. And this time, the conquest was permanent. Edward organized a massive and multifaceted invasion. He broke the power of the Welsh rulers, and Llewellyn was killed in battle. By the spring of 1283, all of Wales was in Edward's hands, and it was brought under permanent English rule. Thereafter, the title Prince of Wales no longer applied to the local Welsh rulers. It was a title that Edward bestowed upon his son and eventual heir to the throne. So the tradition of English kings designating their heir as the Prince of Wales really began with Edward. In order to secure his hold on Wales, Edward directed the construction of a series of enormous castles throughout the region. They were designed to intimidate the people and to discourage any further resistance. It was the same strategy used by William the Conqueror, and many of those castles remain to this day. So we find ourselves about a decade into Edward's reign, and from the very beginning, Edward established himself as a warrior and a conqueror, and also a loyal husband devoted to his wife. In fact, in many respects, those were the basic elements of medieval romances. They usually featured a king or knight engaged in some type of heroic or daring activity. And that warrior was usually guided by notions of bravery and chivalry. And at the same time, he was usually in love with a maiden or noble lady. And the hero's bravery and daring were usually designed to win the love and affection of the lady. 
In the Arthurian legends, the central figure was often one of Arthur's knights. So as Arthurian romances developed during this period, there was an increasing emphasis on the knights and less of a focus on Arthur himself. Figures like Lancelot and Percival and Gawain emerged as the leading figures in many of these stories. But these stories were mostly composed in languages like French, not English. In fact, up until this point, there really had not been a romance composed in English. Layamon's Brute was the first telling of the Arthurian legend in English, and it had been composed about a century earlier. But it wasn't really a romance. It was based on Geoffrey of Monmouth's original version of the story, and it was more of an epic tale with Arthur as conqueror. The early development of the Arthurian legend into medieval romances really took place in France, with French writers like Chrétien de Troyes. But around the current point in our story, romantic literature finally started to appear in English. And interestingly, that new literature was not part of the Arthurian legend. It was a completely different story called King Horn. Since this is generally considered to be the first English romance, I want to take you through the poem. And I also want to look at the language that was used in the poem to show how English was evolving during this period. The first thing I should note is that we know very little about the ultimate origin of this story. Most of the characters and locations in the poem are fictional. However, the poem does specifically set part of the story in Ireland. And most of the other places mentioned in the story are usually associated with the Celtic areas of Western Britain, like Wales and Cornwall and far southwestern England. Many scholars think the story is native to Britain and probably Celtic in origin. The poem itself has an uncertain date. The manuscripts that contain the three surviving versions of the poem all date to the early 1300s, but scholars are confident that the poem itself was composed in the 1200s. Some suggest the first half of the 1200s, but the modern trend is to date it a bit later, perhaps around the time that Edward was completing the conquest of Wales. Now, all three surviving versions of the poem tell the same basic story, but they vary quite a bit from line to line, and that suggests that the poem originally passed in the oral tradition before it finally started to be written down around the current point in our story. We get a sense of the oral nature of the poem in the first few lines. The poem begins, All be they of cheer, that to my song you hear, a song I shall to you sing, of Murray the king. Here's the same passage in the original Middle English. Alabayan he blitha, that to me song litha, a song it shall you singa, of Murray the king. Now this type of opening was common for poems or songs that were sung by a minstrel to an audience. He invites his audience to listen to a song and be entertained by it. So again, this appears to be a song that was transcribed at some point in the mid to late 1200s. Now we're told that the story begins with Murray, the king of Sudana. Again, this is a fictional location, but many scholars associate it with either Devon or Cornwall, so somewhere in the southwestern part of Britain. And in the poem, we soon find out that King Murray's son was named Horn. 
horn as a young man, fifteen years old, and most fair and admirable. According to the poem, there was no thane fairer than he was. He was bright as the glass. He was white as the flower. Rose-red was his color. He was fair and also bold, and he was fifteen winters old. In all the kingdoms there was like him none. Twelve companions he had, and by horn they were all led. All were sons of rich men, and all were fair men. Now here's the same passage in the original Middle English. He was bricked, so the glass. He was wheat, so the fleur. Rosa red was his couleur. He was fair and eke bold, and a fifteen winter hold. In none king richa, nas not his elicha. Twelfth fair and he hada, that he hall with him lada. Allo richa manasonas, and all he were fair gomes. By the way, this passage contains the first use of the word color in the English language. The Old English word was hue, which still survives, but color is the more common word today. Also, note the final word gomas, meaning men. We've actually seen that word before, a long time ago. The word was guma in Old English, and it meant man. And you might remember that guma, or gomas here, ultimately became the second part of the word bridegroom, which was literally the bride's man. And over time, that compound word was shortened to groom. The word started to acquire its R sound after the G in the 1500s. So that's how an Old English word for man acquired a modern sense as the man in a wedding ceremony. Now, after introducing us to Horn and his immediate family, we're told that the kingdom was invaded by brutal warriors. King Murray is killed, but Horn is spared. Rather than being killed, he and his twelve companions are forced into exile. They are given a boat, which they row until they eventually come to the kingdom of Westernessa. There, the king is named Almire, and he welcomes Horn and his companions. King Almire is impressed with Horn and he soon becomes a favorite at court. The king's daughter is named Riminhild, and after a period of time, she falls madly in love with Horn. She sends messengers to bring Horn to her. We then have the following passage. Riminhild rose to stand, and took him by the hand. She sat with him on the bed or pale, and offered wine to drink his fill. She made him fair cheer, and took him about the neck or swear. She offered him kisses, as she lusted with bliss. Horn, she said, without strife, thou shalt have me to thy wife. Now here's the same passage in the original Middle English. Rimin healed up Gonstonda, and took him be the Honda. Hail set to him on Pela. Of wind to drink his fuel, he'll make it a him fair cheer, and talk him about the swear. After he'll him coolsta, so well so here loosta, horn he'll said without strife, thou shalt have me to the weef. 
Now, I hope you can hear how familiar this Middle English passage sounds. The overall sentence structure is close to modern English, and many of the words are familiar. But we still have a few antiquated terms. Instead of neck, the poem uses another Old English word, which was swear. Now, both words meant neck, and both go back to Old English, but swear or swire has largely disappeared from English over time. The passage also uses the word pele, which meant fine cloth, and in this context presumably meant bed covering or bed sheets. The word still exists as pall, which is a fine sheet that is sometimes used to cover a casket. Of course, that gave us the term pallbearer. You might also notice the continued use of the Old English pronouns. The poem doesn't generally use the modern pronoun she. It tends to use the older pronoun heo. So the older pronoun forms were still in common use. Now returning to the poem, Princess Rimenhild has declared her love for Horn and proposed to him. Horn loves her too, but he faces a predicament. Her father, the king, doesn't know that Horn is an exiled prince. He thinks Horn is a peasant, or thrall. So Horn realizes that he cannot marry a princess given his current status. He replies, I am come from a peasant, or thrall, and a foundling befall. It would not be naturally found for you as my spouse to be bound. It would be no fair wedding betwixt a thrall and a king. Now here's the original Middle English. Each amicoma of thrall, and fundling befall, ne feola hit de of kunda, to spus beo me bunda, hit nero no fair wedding, betwixt a thrall and a king. Now I should note that this passage contains the word spus, or spouse, that's a French word, which we sometimes use in place of native words like husband and wife, especially if we want to sound a little more formal. Now, this isn't the first use of the term in English, but it was a relatively new word in the language at this time. It's also found in the Uncrenoisa and a few other documents from the early 1200s. So, despite his love for the princess, Horn expresses his reservations about becoming her spouse. Upon hearing Horn's reply, the princess swoons, and her heart is broken. But Horn offers a possible solution to their dilemma. If she will help him to become a knight, then they can be married. She then promises that he will soon be made a knight. She has her father's steward make an appeal on Horn's behalf, and the king agrees to make Horn and his companions knights. A short time later, they are all knighted. Princess Rimenhild then calls again for Horn. She expresses her love and says that he should honor his promise to marry her. Horn then replies with the following passage. Rimenhild, quoth he, be still. I will do all thy will. Also, as it may be by chance, with spear I shall first ride, and my knighthood prove before I begin to woo thee. Now here's the original Middle English. Rimin hild quoth he, beo stila, each woolo done all the wheela. Also heat milt betida, mid spera I shall first rida, 
a mechnicht hood prova, and each degina to wucha. Sahorn basically says, I will marry you, like I said, just not right now. He says that a knight must prove his worthiness to his lover. This was the traditional notion that a knight had to win the love of his maiden through bravery and heroic actions. So Horn is saying that he must prove himself in this manner first, then he will return to marry her. Now this passage sets up the events that are commonly found in medieval romances, but it also does something else. It shows a very interesting and important development in the language. And that development is the early use of our modern future tense. Specifically, the use of the words shall and will to indicate that something will take place in the future. Now, back when we looked at Old English, we saw that English had specific ways to indicate present tense and past tense by adding an inflectional ending to the verb. For present tense, most of those inflectional endings have disappeared over time. So today, we can just use the basic verb, what we might call the infinitive. So for the verb jump, if we want to indicate that the action is happening right now, we can just use that basic verb form. I jump, you jump, we jump, they jump. The only exception is third-person singular, where we add an S to the end. He, she, it jumps. So we do still use that inflection to help us mark present tense. For past tense, we add a different inflectional ending, usually ed. So I jumped, you jumped, they jumped. Sometimes we add a t, like in I slept or you slept. But notice that we don't have an ending to mark future tense, to indicate that the action will take place at some point in the future. Some other Indo-European languages have a verb ending that will do that. But like other Germanic languages, English doesn't have that type of ending because the original Germanic language didn't have a future ending either. So how did the Anglo-Saxons indicate future tense? Well, they just used the present tense. In some situations, they could add a time element to the sentence to make it clear that the action was to take place in the future. So the person might say something like, I jump tomorrow, or I jump next week. But in most cases, the speaker simply relied upon context. In the context of a particular sentence, I jump might mean that I am jumping right now, or it might mean that I will jump at some point in the future, or it might mean both. Again, context usually made the time frame clear. But in early Middle English, a new grammatical feature developed whereby a speaker could indicate future tense by using either the word will or shall before the verb. So, I will jump, or I shall jump. There's actually some indication that this new way of indicating future tense was present in late Old English, but it wasn't common until the 1200s and 1300s. So, why were the words will and shall appropriated to this new use? Well, both of those words are Old English words and they had specific uses in Old English. The word will indicated a desire or wish to do something. So you might will something to be done. You might also be willing to do it. It could also be used as a noun, 
so I might impose my will upon you. Well, if you express a will to do something, that action is going to take place at some point in the future. So you can see how the word will often had an implied sense of the future. In the context of the King Horn poem, it's a small leap from I will myself to marry you to I will marry you. There's a subtle shift in the use of the word will from the desire to do something in the future to simply a marker of future tense. In the passage I read to you earlier, Horn says that he will marry Rimenhild. He says, I will do all thy will, each will done all thee will. He is literally saying, I will do that that you want me to do. And in that sentence, he uses the word will twice. The first time is to mark the future tense, I will do, and the second time is the more traditional use of the word, he is going to do thy will. So, we can see the word will being used both ways in that sentence. The word shall also had a more limited sense in Old English, and it's a sense that we still have today. It meant must or ought to. So, if you shall do something, you're obligated to do it. We still use the word in that sense, especially in legal documents. For example, a lease provision might provide that the tenant shall pay rent in a specified amount. Again, the word has that traditional sense of an obligation. But notice that the obligation is satisfied at some point in the future. So again, the word shall always had that implied sense of the future. It was a small step from the tenant shall pay rent in the amount of $500, meaning the tenant is obligated to pay that amount, to the tenant shall pay $500, meaning the tenant is going to do that in the future. So, just like with the word will, the word shall was starting to be used to mark the future tense in early Middle English. In the same passage from King Horn that I read earlier, Horn says, With spear I shall first ride, mid spera I shall first ride, meaning, with my spear I shall go out. So, this is an example of the word shall being used to indicate future tense. Now, throughout the Middle English period, either will or shall could be used to indicate a future action, and there doesn't appear to have been any significant grammatical distinction between the two. But in the early 1600s, an Oxford professor named John Wallace published a grammar guide, and he stated that shall should be used for first person and will should be used for second and third person. So, I shall and we shall, but you will, he will, she will, and they will. Some modern grammar guides still advocate this rule, but it's rarely followed by most modern English speakers, especially in American English, where will has always been the preferred form for all persons. By the way, English speakers also created a couple of other ways to express future action. One way was to combine the verb to be with the word going and then the main verb. So, I am going to jump, or he is going to run. This construction started to pop up in late Middle English. 
In fact, it appeared for the first time in a document composed in the year 1482. So that was a couple of centuries later in our story. The other future construction found in English is the verb to be plus the word about and then the main verb. So, I am about to jump and she is about to run. We use this construction to indicate that something is going to happen in the immediate future. And again, this construction first appeared later in our story, in late Middle English. So, around the current point in our story, in the late 1200s, English was relying upon will and shall to mark the future tense. And this was still a relatively new development in the language. Now, returning to the story of King Horn, Horn delays his marriage to Rimenhild so he can go out and perform some acts of bravery and prove his worthiness. Rimenhild gives him a ring and asks him to wear it as a sign of his love. She also says that the ring will protect him if he looks at it and thinks of her. Horn then takes his leave. A short time later, he meets a group of invaders. Horn slays the leader, and then after looking at the ring, he slays a hundred more. He puts the leader's head on a spear and brings it back to the king. The next day, Horn goes to see Rimenhild. She's upset and recounts a dream where she caught a fish, but the fish broke through the net and escaped. They both consider the dream to be a bad omen. Horn comforts her and renews his pledge to marry her. Now, one of Horn's companions is named Thickenhild, and he betrays Horn. He tells the king that Horn has seduced Remenhild and is planning to seize the throne by killing the king and marrying his daughter. The king believes the story and banishes Horn from the kingdom. Before leaving, Horn visits Remenhild and tells her that her dream has come true, that he has been banished and he's going to an unknown country for seven years. He tells her not to wait more than that length of time. They kiss, and she faints. The passage reads, They kissed each other for a while, or stound, and Remenhild fell to the ground. He kuste him well astunda, and Remenhild fell to grunda. This passage uses the word stund, or stound, which is an old word for a moment or short period of time. It's a native English word, but it's related to the word instant from Latin and French. It's also related to the English word stall, meaning to delay for a short period of time. It's also related to the English word stand and the French word stay. Now today, this word stand may linger on in a few regional dialects, but it's largely disappeared from standard English. So, after this brief encounter between Horn and the princess, Horn leaves and travels to Ireland, where he's welcomed by the local Irish king. While there, he battles and kills a giant and a group of invaders who threaten the kingdom. A long time passes, and because of Horn's exile from Westernessa, Rimenhild has no contact with him. Meanwhile, her father arranges for her to be married to another king as part of a marriage alliance. She doesn't want to go forward with the marriage, but she doesn't have a choice. A few days before the wedding, she sends a messenger to Horn to inform him of the impending marriage. When Horn receives the message, 
he immediately leaves to return to Rimenhild and is accompanied by several Irish warriors. He arrives just as the wedding has begun. He dons a disguise, but a gatekeeper on a bridge forbids Horn from entering the hall where the wedding is taking place. Undeterred, Horn throws the gatekeeper from the bridge. Here's the passage. Horn went to the gate turn, and that wicket opened or unspurned. The boy he should have to pay, Horn threw him over the bridge, that his ribs he did break, and Horn quickly came through the gate. Now here's the original Middle English version. Horn gone to the gate turna, and that wicked unsperna, the boy he should abuga, Horn threw him over the bridge, that his rib is him to braca, and so the comb in atagata. Now, this passage is important for one primary reason. The gatekeeper is called a boy, and this is the first known use of the word boy in the English language. And that may be surprising, because boy is such a common and familiar and short little word that it feels like it should be an Old English word, but it's not found in any Old English documents. It doesn't appear in writing until now, in the mid to late 1200s. The original meaning was more along the lines of a young servant, but over time, its meaning was extended to any young man or male child. So, the word boy appears for the first time in English in this poem, King Horn. And here's another interesting fact. The word girl also first appeared around this same time. And again, girl seems like it should be a native English word because it's such a common and basic word, but apparently it's not. It isn't found in any Old English documents. The word girl doesn't appear in King Horn, but it is found for the first time in a story about Thomas Becket contained in a collection of sermons and saints' lives called the South English Legendary. That manuscript is dated to around the year 1300, so just a few decades after King Horn. So, boy and girl arrived in English around the same time in the early Middle English period. And I guess that it's appropriate that boy and girl would appear in English around the same time that English romances were starting to appear, because both terms can refer to young adults who aren't married yet. But, when they first appeared in the language, the words boy and girl had very different meanings. As I noted, the word boy meant a young servant, usually a male servant, but the emphasis was more on the occupation than the gender. And believe it or not, the word girl could refer to a child of either gender. So if someone used the word girl, they could actually be referring to a boy or a girl. Sometimes a boy was referred to as a knave girl. That general usage was common for about a century. Even in the late 1300s, when Geoffrey Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales, he referred to children of both genders as young girls. But a short time later, the term started to be restricted to young females, and by the late 1400s, it was no longer used to refer to boys. It's very likely that the word girl became limited to females as the word boy became more and more common in English throughout the 1300s. 
So as boy shifted from its sense as a servant to its sense as a young male, that allowed the word girl to become restricted to young females. So it appears that the words boy and girl developed in conjunction with each other. Now I said that neither word is found in Old English, and the ultimate origin of both words is unknown. There are lots of theories about the origin of those two words, but none of them are generally accepted. For example, Swedish, Norwegian, and the Low German dialects all have words similar to girl that can refer to a young child. So some scholars have speculated that the word girl is a Germanic word that was probably used in Old English, but it doesn't survive in any Old English documents. Now that's possible, but the connection between those words is uncertain. And if the word was native to English, the hard G before the I would have probably shifted to a Y sound, as tended to happen in early Old English. So English would have the word today as yearl instead of girl. Along the same lines, Frisian and Dutch have words similar to boy that mean a servant or young man. So there could be an ancient connection to those words. French also had a word, embouy, which referred to someone shackled or chained. So that could also have been an influence. Again, there's no clear indication where the word boy came from. All we know for certain is that it appears for the first time in King Horn, in the passage where Horn throws the boy or servant from a bridge. Now, returning to the poem, Horn makes his way to the wedding, still in disguise. He approaches Rimenhild, who doesn't recognize him. She offers him a horn filled with wine. Horn slips the ring she gave him several years earlier into the drink. He then tells her to drink to horn of horn. Literally, drink to horn from the horn. Now, Rimenhild is confused by that request. She returns to her room and finds the ring in the horn. She then sends for the strange man who asked her to drink from the horn. And Horn arrives and reveals his true identity. He says, I am Horn, thine own. Me, how can you not know? I am Horn of Westernessa. In your arms you me kiss. They kissed each other and made much bliss. Now here's the original Middle English. Ich am Horn, din oa. Ne kannst du me noch noa. Ich am Horn of Westernessa. In armis du me kusa. He kusta him mid yewisa, and make it in mucha blisa. Horn tells her that he has armed men with him, and they will prevent the wedding to the foreign king. Horn and his men then proceed to slay the wedding guest who had betrayed Horn earlier and forced his exile. He then marries Rimenhild. Afterwards, Horn and the Irish warriors return to Horn's homeland of Sudna and they proceed to recapture the kingdom that had been lost many years before. Horn becomes king of Sudana, and Rimenhild becomes queen. So, that's the story in a nutshell. As you can see, the poem has a lot of the same elements as epic poetry. There are lots of battles and lots of killing, but this poem has a central love theme that really drives the story. 
and for the first time this type of medieval romance was recorded in English. Now, around the same time that King Horn was being transcribed and preserved for history, a scribe at the Priory of St. James near Exeter came across an old document. It was a papal edict dated about a century earlier, to the year 1199. Now, we don't know what the scribe was doing with that old document, but for some reason he decided to write down something in brown ink on the back. And what he wrote down was a song, a love song. We don't really know where this song came from, but it was preserved in English on the back of the papal edict in the last decade or so of the 1200s, so a short time after King Horn was written down. And this song is generally considered to be the oldest surviving love song in the English language. The song is called Bride on a Briar, literally, Bird on a Briar. But the bird in this song is not an actual bird. It's a woman. And in fact, that's a good place to begin the discussion of this song with the historical link between the word bird and women. In modern British English, the word bird is still a commonly used slang term for a woman. And that connection goes back to early Middle English, where the word bird was sometimes used to mean a maiden or girl. I should also note that a parallel development took place in American English in the early 1900s. During that time, American English began using the word chick in a similar way. And today, chick is still sometimes used as a slang term for a girl or woman. I should also note that the word hen is sometimes used as a derogatory slang term for a woman, especially an older woman. So this connection between birds and women is still common in the language today. But why did that connection develop? Well, to understand how the word bird came to be used as a slang term for a woman, we have to consider the fact that early Middle English actually had three different words that were pronounced in a very similar way and could all be used to refer to a girl or woman. Let's start with the word bird itself meaning a type of fowl. The first thing to note about the word bird is that it was rendered two different ways in Old English and Middle English. Sometimes the R came after the vowel, like in Modern English. So we find the word spelled as B-I-R-D and probably pronounced something like beard. This was especially common in the north of England. But in the south, it was often spelled with the R before the vowel. So there we often find it spelled B-R-I-D or B-R-Y-D and pronounced something like breed. This type of variation where two sounds are sometimes reversed is actually quite common. And in this first English love song, the word was spelled both ways. So we have bird rendered as either beard, or breed. Either way, it could mean a literal bird, or it could be used as a slang term for a girl or woman. Now, early Middle English also had a very similar word, beard, which was a poetic term for a woman or lady. So, it's only found in poems, not in other documents. 
This word was usually spelled with a U, so it had a slightly different vowel sound. And despite the similarities with bird, most scholars think this word bird was a distinct word at the time. And then we have another word, the word bride or breed. Again, this is an Old English word, and we still have it today. And just like today, the word meant a woman about to be married or just married. So all three of these words began with a B and ended with a D and had an R sound in the middle. In that poetic term for a woman, bird, the R came after the vowel. And in the word bride or bred, the R came before the vowel. And the word bird could be rendered either way, either with the R before the vowel or after the vowel. So if bird was rendered one way, it was a virtual homonym for bride. And if it was rendered the other way, it was a virtual homonym for that poetic term for a woman. So you can probably see how birds became associated with women, especially in poetry. It was very easy for a poet to play on those linguistic similarities. When talking about a bird, the audience would instinctively notice the similarity to those other words, meaning a girl or a woman. So whenever we come across a Middle English poem or song about a bird, there's always a chance that the bird symbolically represents a woman. And that's definitely the case here with Bred on a Brer. So let's go through the lyrics of the song, first in modern English, then in the original Middle English. Then I'll play you a version of the song so you can hear the melody. Now here's the modern English translation. Bird on a briar, bird, bird on a briar. Mankind comes from love, thus love we crave. Blissful bird, have pity on me, or dig, love, dig for me my grave. I am so bleeth, so bright, bird on briar, when I see the handmaid in the hall. She is white of limb, lovely, true. She is fair and the flower of all. Might I her at my will have, steadfast of love, lovely, true. From my sorrow she may save me. Joy and bliss would wear me new. Now here are the original Middle English lyrics. Breed on a prayer, breed, breed on a prayer. Kundis come of lova, lova to crave. Bleathful bearded on me to rave, O greath leif, greath thu me me grave. He comes so bleather, so brecht, breed on brer. When I say that hende in holla, she is wheat of lima, luvele treva. She is fairer and fleur of all. Mirte each hera at wheel haven, stayed fast of lova, lovely treva. Of me sorrow she ma me saven, joy and blisse were were me newa. Now here's a version of the song performed with the original melody. This version comes from a collection called English Medieval Songs by Russell Oberlin. Breed on a breed, breed on a breed. 
So that's Bird on a Briar, the oldest known secular love song in the English language. Now, throughout this episode, we've explored the concept of romance and love. We've explored the origin of words like boy and girl and groom and bride and spouse. We've looked at the oldest love song in English, and we went through the oldest romance composed in English, a poem about a warrior and conqueror named Horn who was madly in love with his queen. And that description of Horn also applies to the English king of this period, Edward I. He was also a warrior and conqueror who deeply loved his wife, Eleanor. But in the year 1290, about 16 years into Edward's reign, Eleanor suddenly took ill at Nottinghamshire. A short time later, she died in Edward's arms. The decision was made to take her body to Westminster Abbey to be interred. As the procession slowly made its way southward toward London, a distraught Edward followed the procession. He erected a series of crosses to mark the places where her body rested as it made the journey. There were twelve crosses in all, which became known as Eleanor Crosses, and some of them are still standing to this day. Edward's despair was reflected in his writings. He later wrote, My harp is turned to mourning. In life I loved her dearly, nor can I cease to love her in death. Edward and Eleanor had been inseparable for 36 years, and for the rest of his life Edward struggled both personally and politically. Scholars of this period often divide Edward's reign into two distinct periods. The first part of his reign was marked by political and military successes. But around the time that Eleanor died, all of that started to change. The latter part of Edward's reign was marked by policies that were inconclusive and a foreign policy that was met with rebellion, especially up in Scotland. Next time, we'll continue to look at some of the developments during the first part of Edward's reign. That was the period when Edward enjoyed many successes. And during that time, he implemented a large number of administrative and legal reforms. And some of those reforms reflect interesting developments in the culture at the time. And those developments were also reflected in the language. So next time, we'll continue to explore how the events of this period shaped the English language. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast.